одного ранку, ще на світанку, земля здригнулась і враз закипіла наша кров ракети з неба. Welcome to another show of Geopolitics Decanted. It is Sunday, June 19th. We're back discussing the war in Ukraine after a brief hiatus. That music you just heard was the Ukrainian interpretation of Bella Ciao, the famous World War II-era Italian anti-fascist song, with lyrics, of course, adapted for the current era and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I'm Dmitry Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C., And I'm once again joined by my friend, Michael Kaufman, one of the premier experts on the Russian military and a research program director in the Russia Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analysis. And I hope all the dads listening out there have had a great Father's Day. So, Mike, let's jump in. Uh, let's hear from you. First of all, we've been off last week. Uh, what's the latest update in the fight? Um, and maybe you can start us off with what's happening in the South and the Kherson region. The Ukrainians have launched some counterattacks there and are now apparently within 10 to 15 kilometers of the city. Um, what, what are you seeing in terms of their progress in potentially taking that city and more broadly in the Donbass? Thanks, Dmitry. You know, I think there's been a Ukrainian localized counteroffensive west of Kherson for some time now. Initially, it sort of fizzled out uh, and Uh, they've sort of renewed it along several points, running the entire line of contact. Russian forces have basically set up a large cordon around Kherson, west of the river. And they've been digging in. They've been setting up multiple lines of defenses over the past month. So even though, if you remember much early on, we were discussing what were likely places for Ukrainian counterattack. And I suggested Kherson just because the density of forces there made it relatively very advantageous, and the Russian position wasn't very good uh, west of the river. I think that Ukrainian gains are probably going to be pretty incremental. Um, yes, they're getting closer to the city, but they didn't start that very far off at, at um, that line of contact. Anyway, I think it's going to be a, a hard fight. I actually don't expect this specific offensive to make tremendous gains. I suspect what it's going to do is potentially set up Ukrainian forces in a better position for any offensive further down the line, meaning I doubt they have the force availability for a major breakthrough at this point in Kherson. I think you have to look at these as fights that sort of set up follow-on offensives in the future and try to incrementally establish a better position. And what about the rest of the Donbass fight? The Donbass fight is... Um, You know, it's kind of a slow-paced war of attrition, right? You have uh, both forces eating away at each other. Uh, Russian units are trying to capture Severodonetsk. It's a flowing battle for the city. Um, the fight in the city, you see a lot of the units they're using are Lugansk's 2nd Army Corps, Chechens and the like. Uh, Ukrainians have sent in some of the International Legion units to counterattack. It's going back and forth. There's some movement of Russian positions coming out of um, Papasna. Uh, the highway to that pocket, I think, is still open, but, but somewhat contested. I think my impression is that the bridges to Severodonetsk have now been cut. And there's an interesting series of battles taking place north of Slavyansk and west of Azum. The truth is it's kind of hard to tell the, the extent to which progress is being made because in a war of attrition, there's uh, a lot of casualties being inflicted, but you're not seeing tremendous amount of territory shifting hands, right? If this was a war characterized by maneuver, you would be seeing breakouts, you would be seeing uh, reserves being thrown in to exploit in advance to try to turn a flank. So you'd be seeing a lot of dramatic kind of action on the map, whereas here you're not likely to have that. Uh, here, you're, you're likely to see much more um, sort of steady attritional fights, and then eventually one force give way and set up a secondary defensive line and then begin grinding away at that line. So I think, I think, I think a grinding fight might be the best way to characterize it at this point. Um, the, the Ukrainian strategy has been to make Severodonetsk and then Lysychansk essentially areas where they tried to exhaust the Russian offensive. So I'm sure that looking at the map, they also appreciate that 
you know, these are going to be very hard points to defend. And there's a fair chance that at some point Russian military will be able to close that pocket. But to them, it's worth it because they can leverage urban terrain and they can essentially exhaust the Russian offensive or at least try to. I think that's been their approach. So let's talk a little bit about the force exhaustion issue. I just shared a tweet um, in the space from the UK Ministry of Defense, and I'll just read it, um, point number two on the slide that they shared. Combat units from both sides are committed to intense combat in the Donbass and are likely experiencing variable morale. Ukrainian forces have likely suffered desertions in recent weeks. However, Russian morale highly likely remains especially troubled. Cases of whole Russian units refusing orders and armed standoffs between officers and their troops continue to occur. What, what do you make of that uh, update from the UK Ministry of Defense? And are you seeing any force rotations on either side? Uh, obviously, the, the fight started in early to mid-April in Donbass. Uh, it's been going on for you know uh, quite a while now, two months. Uh, at what point are the Russians going to rotate their forces out? And what do you think of the same on the Ukrainian side? Okay, well, you know, regarding the tweets from the UK MOD, I, I would say that after the first month, one and a half, a lot of those tweets began to look like things that you, you saw in open sources and on Twitter just being restated and resummarized. So uh, my general impression is that uh, you have two forces that are now largely relying on second and third echelon troops. You have a lot of units that have been mobilized by both sides. So you see an increasing share of uh, fighters from Lugansk and Donetsk who are people that were mobilized and uh, thrown into these units on the Russian side. You also see uh, stronger dependence on reservists, uh, some of whom have signed contracts. And on the Ukrainian side, you see much heavier use of the TDF, the Territorial Defense Forces, who have very little training, um, not very high morale from what it looks like in a lot of areas and not great equipment. So both sides are now uh, have lost some of their best uh, units, best infantry, best equipment, and as the fight grinds on, they're essentially using units with much lower morale. And that's why we're not seeing much in the way of maneuver warfare, because the forces aren't there to, to be able to do it. And that's why you're not going to see probably the Russian military make tremendous gains or have breakthroughs. Nor are you likely to see the Ukrainian military achieve the same. You're going to see um, seesawing battles. This is what's also been happening north of Kharkiv. You didn't ask me about that, but, you know. Ukrainians had looked like they were pulling up well towards the border, and then Russian forces counterattacked and pushed them back, and then Ukrainian forces counterattacked again, right? So there's been uh, a series of uh, battles up north of Kharkiv that people don't focus on, but essentially uh, you still see, even in areas like that, uh, a real challenge for Ukrainian forces in, in driving Russian units back, that's driving artillery out of range of the city. Um what else can I add to this tweet? Sorry, it's a bit late in the evening on a Sunday. <laughs> no worries. Let me ask you about artillery. You've been um, quite early on saying that this war from the start has been a war of artillery. And the Russians, uh, of course, have an enormous advantage in fires and uh, multiple launch rocket systems, howitzers, and the rest vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Ukrainians. Uh, is there... Um, you know, obviously, we're, we're starting to see some of the military aid starting to flow in from the West. The Caesars from, from the French, the um, HIMARS are going to arrive from the U U.S. as well. Um, U.S. howitzers are coming in into the battlefield. Um, do you think they're coming in in numbers and at speed to make a difference and to try to push the Russians back? Um, or is it too little too late? OK, great question. Oh, and by the way, I remember the latter part of which I asked me before, which is on rotation. So Russian forces are, from the looks of it, trying to rotate officers back. But we should have a separate conversation about how the Russian military is trying to extend its staying power in the battlefield by forming reserve battalions. And what does that mean long term? Um, because it, it's quite true that neither side really has uh, the manpower availability to cycle units out. That is, Russia does not have units to replace these uh, forces on the line with to rotate them out. And, and I think Ukraine has similar issues, although I know less about known 
consistently less about the state of Ukrainian forces, though in the last month we discovered, I think, much more about what's going on in the Ukrainian military than we knew previously. The question on artillery. So, yeah, there are two big issues. Obviously, Russian military has a tremendous advantage in fires, artillery fires, and also use of air power, which, you, which you're seeing increasingly more in this fight. Uh, more importantly, they have the ammunition, right? And Ukrainians don't. Ukrainians are very low on ammunition for most types of Soviet artillery. It feels like they're out of ammo for probably a lot of Soviet MLRS, and they're being pretty frank and blunt about it. So uh, it's not, I don't think it's very much a secret at this stage. They need to essentially switch on to Western-made systems that have NATO standard uh, ammunition. I think actually they're being given quite a bit of artillery. If you look at what they've gotten from Norwegians, from the French, from others, and including all them triple sevens from us, you know, those early uh, efforts to transition them show probably the way or, or how you need to train up their forces. There are growing pains, right? Uh, learning how to fire artillery isn't nearly as hard as learning how to maintain those systems and service them. And there are a lot of, there are issues of folks reporting, um, working on the, I think, from the front lines reporting uh, there where, where Ukrainian crews were firing artillery. And you can see they were having a host of issues from cycling crews that are trained with those that aren't trained um, to all sorts of minor kind of growing pains in, in making this big transition. You know, it is very hard for a military that has one type of systems, one type of munitions to make a transition on a large scale to a totally different standard of systems, right, made by, um, made by a different set of countries. And imagine trying to do this in the middle of a large war, Dmitry. So this is no, no easy feat. So from my point of view, are they, are they getting enough? Yeah, probably so. I think they're training on a lot more systems, right? Um, the second point is that, yeah, we're probably trying to figure out, I, I, there's a lot I don't know here, but I suspect we're trying to figure out what's the best way to train Ukrainian forces quickly on these, but also train them in such a way that they're going to be able to maintain the systems. And, you know, a week after being deployed onto the battlefield, they won't have to be yanked back. Because, you know, there's no service depot for HIMARS in uh, the Donbass or for M777s, right? So folks have to understand that if something breaks down there, you have to be dragging it pretty far back for it to get fixed somewhere in the West and then sent again to the front line. Um, so are they getting it fast enough for this phase of the war? No. I don't think so. I think that uh, I think they're probably going to get enough artillery systems to be able to stem maybe any very many major gains by the Russian military. But more than likely, it's going to set them up uh, for counteroffensive if they want to conduct one some months down the line. I think that in this current period, this is the more dangerous phase for Ukrainian forces because uh, they're dealing with exhaustion. They're dealing with attrition, the low on ammunition in a number of areas, and uh, and they're just making the transition to Western artillery. All right, so there's a lot of challenges that that I think we have to deal with uh, that they're going to have to deal with in the coming in the coming month or two. Speaking of aid, uh, we've heard a lot maybe a month or two ago about switchblades. I was sending switchblades to Ukraine, but then we actually haven't seen a lot of evidence of their use on the battlefield. Is that truly the case? Is there a problem um, uh, with the switchblades? Maybe the cranes aren't trained for it or they're not being very effective in this current state of the fight? Um, yeah, so there's lots of systems like that where people get excited about them and it turns out that not only are they not game changers, you don't really see them make much of a difference on the battlefield or units using them. And it happens all the time. That's why I always discourage people from getting excited over a tactical kit. Like the big significance of military systems to Ukraine is that over time they'll have substantial sufficient quantity of Western artillery, and they will have the munitions as well to be able to use it effectively, uh, and that will make a difference over time. None of the individual artillery systems, when people get excited about the fact that they're more accurate, they're more that, and they start hyping it, that's not that's not what's going to make the tremendous difference in, in general. When it comes to switchblades, so. I've heard pretty underwhelming things about switchblade performance. I think switchblade, you know, 300s are pretty limited systems. And what it does, it delivers a 40 millimeter grenade payload. Um, the electronics on it, from what I hear, isn't uh, uh, isn't exactly the latest generation tech. I won't kind of get into those details, but it sounds like Ukrainians um, haven't used them that much or 
or basically maybe found them much less effective than using drones for reconnaissance. The, the main utility for drones in this conflict has been essentially to find and fix targets. That's where they're most effective. Right? Some of the other smaller loitering munitions you see both sides use, they're not especially effective or don't make the difference, at least haven't yet. Uh, and, and it's the same thing with all systems. The more complicated it is, the less likely it is to be used effectively. And that's why many times I've, I've heard Ukrainians basically, uh, in, in some cases, really prefer things like NLOS to something like a Javelin because the Javelin CLU, the command launch unit, isn't that easy to use. It just isn't, right? Um, it requires some training. It's a, it's a fairly complex piece of equipment, and it's a very expensive piece of equipment. So uh, a lot of times you'll see troops wanting to use something is much simpler. And that effect is going to uh, going to be felt even more as the war progresses, because as you lose your best troops, you increasingly have soldiers on the battlefield who have had very little training, very little basic training, no specialization of any kind. And they're going to try to they're going to want to use something that is effective and simple, you know, and, and requires the least the least amount of uh, support to employ. Speaking of expensive systems, the one thing that the Ukrainians have continuously been asking for really since day one of the war is air defense systems. And beyond the old Russian uh, SA systems, they they haven't really gotten much. And um, as you mentioned, the Russian Air Force is is, uh, having some devastating effects in the Donbass. Unless the Ukrainians get better air defense systems to neutralize the Russian Air Force, do you think that their uh, new equipment, uh, their artillery equipment that we just talked about, is really going to help them a lot in their counteroffensives um, as long as they don't control the skies? So, I mean, look, old Soviet air defense systems work. They're quite effective. The big challenge that Ukraine has had is that there's been also an attrition war when it comes to air defense and uh, aircraft, right? Russian airspace forces have lost, uh, I think, Org's blog, if you look at their numbers, somewhere in that 30 range of uh, fixed-wing aircraft. Ukraine has lost quite a few air defense systems. If you look at S-300s, uh, various OSA variants, some Buck M1s, uh, these systems are actually quite effective. The big question is, you know, do they have, uh, can they regenerate, um, do they have enough munitions for them? To some extent, it is uh, a mutually air-denied environment. So Russian air power is being employed on the battlefield, but only in areas where they have localized air superiority. And even then, they're using them in such standoff roles that they're not being very effective as close air support at all. Plus, some of the Russian aircraft, as you know, Su-25 has a very, very dated uh, mission profile. This is like a 70s aircraft, and um, I, I'm... I'll betray my own biases and priors that I don't see a role for Su-25 or A-10 on the modern battlefield against modern air defense. Okay, Sorry to everybody who likes these airplanes, but it's very clear. It's, it's, it's pretty clear from my point of view, if you look at the losses of airframes on both sides, that uh, Su-25 uh, should have been put out to pasture a long time ago. Um, yeah, in general, I would say that Ukraine is going to probably have to make a transition towards Western air defense as well over time. And if we're doing it with artillery and if you're going to end up doing it with um, mechanization of the Ukrainian military, then air defense is the next logical place to look. And what they need is probably not so much man pads, but um, medium range radar guided air defense systems. Uh, the one thing I'll say, Dmitry, you didn't ask this, but, if you look at a lot of battlefield vignettes and you're kind of staring um, at least uh, at, at aspects of this war, visually, you'll see that the, the thing Ukrainians are really missing is the mechanization of the force. So they, they have quite a few tanks. They have artillery, but not ammo. That's being worked on. But that force looks like it's lost a lot of infantry fighting vehicles and APCs. And... Um, that's probably what they're going to need if they're going to want to generate combat effective brigades and and set up reserve brigades, leveraging their advantage in manpower, because that force doesn't look like it has much mobility. I mean, almost every video you see is just just infantry on foot, dismounted. Yeah. No vehicles. So one of the generals yesterday actually said, our friend Rob Lee retweeted this, that they've lost about 1,300 infantry fighting vehicles, 400 tanks, 
seven, 700 artillery units, um, about um, uh, 30 to 40% of, of overall um, equipment that they had before the war. Yeah, I, I'll put it this way. I think they lost quite a bit, um, particularly when it comes to various types of infantry fighting vehicles, APCs. You just don't see any of the Ukrainian BTR mods much on the battlefield anymore. Um, I, I will kind of try to balance that narrative, Mitri, by saying that I think early on, the messaging and the narrative was overly a bit overly optimistic regarding Ukrainian success, right? Even though it was tremendous, and they they certainly defied expectations. And now in the last month, it's become overly spun as being too pessimistic. And I don't really see the situation that way either. Uh, I think that um, Ukrainian forces are off in a bad way, but they don't appear to be near collapse from my point of view. I think their losses are quite significant. And the numbers that Zelensky and the Minister of Defense were given of something like 60 to 100 KIA per day sounded quite plausible to me. I've heard since then much higher numbers that don't sound plausible to me, to be perfectly honest. Um, so the latest ones that they're saying is 200k per day, which is just yeah. enormous numbers. Yeah, I'm, I'll be frank. I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little skeptical of that. But that's just you know one analyst opinion, and you take it for what it's worth, right? Uh, and and the, the simple reason why is it, when you have, um, you know, when you have numbers being given out by officials, there's always kind of a reason for them. They either often overstate or understate certain numbers. And the reason why I'm skeptical is I'm if you have very high figures on either side, they begin to set up like input output problems because you're not seeing the things on the battlefield that would be suggestive of casualties at that rate necessarily. So it's one of those things where you kind of have to look to see if the outcomes, if the outcomes you see at war in the war on the battlefield are actually reflective of what you think those casualties mean, broadly speaking. Uh, so I would say I think Ukrainian casualties are quite high. We've finally gotten a look at some what's been happening to the the Ukrainian side of the equation in terms of their force. And uh, particularly the last two months of the war have taken a very significant toll on Ukrainian forces. Uh, that said, as difficult as their situation is, I don't think that Ukrainian forces are going to collapse in the Donbass. But that's just... Yeah, as always, that's 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 a, an estimate based on at best low to moderate confidence from my point of view, based on the limited information I have looking at the situation. Got it. There's a couple of other things I wanted to chat with you about. Uh, we've talked a lot about the economic impact here. Um, the food crisis just keeps getting worse. The Ukrainian deputy agriculture minister just said on television that. The Ukrainian harvest, um, not necessarily exports, but the harvest itself may decline to just 60 million tons or about 43 percent decrease from last year. Um, that's of grain and oil seeds. And um, so far, the Ukrainians have exported just four million tons since the start of the war about four months ago. Their annual uh, I mean, their monthly exports before the war were five to six million tons. So um, just uh, a, a precipitous drop, both in exports, obviously, because of the blockade, uh, but also the harvest declined due to the war um, in the occupation of the territories. And at the same time, the Russians are bragging um, that uh, the stolen grain from the Kherson region is going to contribute to record harvest for Russia in 2022. Um, one question I have is that there's been a lot of um, discussions between Erdogan uh, in Turkey and Putin about reopening the um, uh, the ports, um, or at least the, for the Russians to allow exports. And the Russians have, uh, we don't know if they're um, disingenuous on this or not, but they've at least expressed willingness to, to look at that. But of course, the ports are mined. Um, they're mined by the Ukrainians. Um, they were mined at the start of the war to prevent the Russians from doing amphibious assaults on the port uh, of Odessa. If the Ukrainians were to make a decision, and obviously they haven't made that decision yet, but if they were to make that decision to demine the ports because they be they would believe that um, uh, the risk of an invasion of Odessa has now diminished considerably or because they would believe the Russian assurances for whatever reason, how long do you think it would take? And, and do the Ukrainians actually have the capacity to demine it themselves? 
Yeah, I'm not sure on what Ukrainian capacity is to demine it. I suspect the answer to that is probably no, but Russians could demine it. Uh, I don't think that the mines that are put down that Ukraine had are particularly sophisticated. They probably put down older uh, anchor mines. Um, the question about this uh, sort of negotiations between Russia and Turkey, I can't tell if that's serious, Dmitry, or if Russians are just playing games, like if they're just stalling. Because Yeah, it's quite possible they don't want to be blamed for the food crisis around the world, right? So they're trying to push the blame back on the Ukrainians. Yeah, and, and also they, they might be negotiating in order to create a sense that there is a potential diplomatic solution so that some of the other proposals they see on the table, for example, for NATO or for a military coalition to try to open up a corridor to Odessa, maybe that they don't get traction, right? Like trying to present the notion that there could be a political resolution to this. But if the Russians or another capable military with um, uh, minesweepers like NATO, for example, were to try to demine these ports, do you think it would take weeks? Do you think it would take months? Do you have, do you have a, a view on that? Uh, no, I don't, because that would require me to know how many mines the Ukrainians installed, and I have no idea. So I got be I got to be honest about what I don't know, Dmitry. <laughs> no, that, that's why we love you. You, you, you don't speculate. Um, let me ask you about Snake Island. Uh, we haven't heard much about it uh, for about a month now. The Ukrainians have tried to dislodge the Russians uh, with some TB2 strikes. The Russians have uh, reinforced their positions on there. Um, why aren't we hearing more about it? Have the Ukrainians given up on trying to get the Russians out? Yeah. So you remember a while ago, there was that one weekend where Ukrainians had good successes striking Russian forces and Russians were trying to get more units onto Snake Island. The Russian position on Snake Island has been significantly reinforced. They have a lot more air defenses there. Uh, Snake Island is a tiny rock, to be honest. So from my point of view, it's a significant position because it's along this uh, key maritime route. But the Russian military is going to have a hard time sustaining forces there. And the reason why is fairly straightforward. If you saw that Ukrainian um, anti-ship missile strike against the Russian rescue tug uh, just a few days ago, it's going to be challenging for Russia to maintain that position over time. But we'll see. And that, that was a harpoon strike, right? Anti-ship missile strike. I mean, that's what that's what the official claims were. So um, that's what I basically saw uh, folks claim. And my sense is that that's a harpoon strike. Maybe it's that Danish system that Ukraine supposedly received. Because, because uh, that's, that's the main one that has... Uh, onshore harpoon strike capability, right? Versus air and sea platforms. Yeah, so so supposedly the Danes promised to give them a Block 2 harpoon coastal defense cruise missile battery, right? And so my best guess is that that's what we saw. They fired two missiles at that tug. I, I suspect their harpoons are not Neptunes because I don't, from what it looks like, Ukraine is basically making Neptunes artisanally, if at all. And so they probably would be a lot more sparing. But that's just, that's just my personal guess. My, I'm, I'm figuring that they've got some number of harpoons now that they're able to use. And the challenge for the Russian military will be, well, how to, how to supply and reinforce Snake Island, either by air via helicopters or via ships. And if Ukrainians are going to begin interdicting that route, it's going to be more challenging for Russia to maintain its position on Snake Island. But you could end up with a, with a contested or mutually denied uh, operating environment in the northwest part of the Black Sea, which doesn't resolve the issue of the blockade at all. But it also makes it much more challenging for the Russian military to try to maintain a close-in blockade or to maintain that position on Snake Island. Which, by the way, I'll just add, you know, if, if Ukrainians get any kind of long-range surface-to-surface capability, probably one of the first things they're going to go after is Russian troops on Snake Island because there's nowhere to hide on that rock. Yep, that makes sense. How much attention do we need to be paying to Transnistria and that whole Moldova border? Um, occasionally, it comes up in the press and, and commentary that the Russians are trying to stir up trouble there. Um, do you think that's a concern at all, or um, what, what's your view on that? I mean, I don't see it as very significant, but that just that could be my own. That could be my own lack of attention or kind of bias looking at the situation. I don't see what Russia can really do there. 
I don't see what capacity they have to substantially change the position. If anything, it's going to create trouble for them uh, and and their own uh, units garrisoned in Transnistria. So I, I doubt we're going to I doubt we're going to see much there. It's so they, they don't have significant forces there, right? No. Oh, no. They have some uh, they have some storage and they have um, very light infantry with basically the oldest equipment you can find in the Russian military. It's uh, you're going to barely get a maneuver battalion or maybe two out of it. And it's going to be very light. There's nothing, not much, not much there that's significant. So just to be clear to folks that that is not a force that that's really going to invade anything. Makes sense. Do you see a natural stalling for Russia at this point in the near future, or is it still unknowable? Sorry, what's the natural stall? Yeah, where, where do you think, um, you know, obviously they're, they're making some progress in Donbass right now very, very slowly. At what point do you think that they're just going to uh, stop, assuming that the counterattacks do not succeed? Well, I think you're going to get probably an operational pause in the next month or two. These, you know, in a, in a war of attrition, it's actually kind of hard to see what's going on, because what you need to look at is what's happening in the force. And that's the one thing you can't see. And the things you can't see, like change of territorial control, don't you're not going to see much of it. It's going to be very incremental and fitful, and it's not going to actually tell you much about the state of the two militaries because they're picking points to fight around, right? But the most significant part of the of the war isn't these geographic points. It is the state of the two forces because now it's a contest of wills, but it's also a material contest, right? As to who's going to run out of equipment, of ammunition and uh, of their best units first. So is the Russian offensive going to stall out? Absolutely, right? But I'm not one of those people that, that's going to claim that I can foresee a culminating point. And I think the folks that have done that in the past, uh, almost a month ago, uh, were probably jumped the gun in terms of these predictions. You can't really predict when it's going to happen. I think both of these forces are likely to get exhausted over the summer. Then it will be an operational pause. A lot of people will want to declare it kind of a stalemate, and then there'll likely be some optimism and folks assuming that it's going to move into a, a frozen conflict, which it is not. Uh, and then you may see a Ukrainian counteroffensive if they have get substantial amount of equipment from Western countries. Someone's down the line. I think the best way to break down the situation is that Russia has an advantage in the local military balance, right, in the Donbass. Okay. Ukraine has an overall advantage given availability of manpower, right, and extensive Western support. But that kind of overall advantage, if you look over into the long term, is highly conditional, right? It is contingent on them getting substantial military aid that is, that is consistent from the United States and from other countries, which we're kind of assuming, but you don't know how that's going to play out over the coming six months to a year. And then what we've probably found out in the last several weeks is what does this war look like in the more near to medium term, right? Which is what is the state of the two forces and what are the prospects for a quicker kind of Ukrainian counteroffensive once the Russian military is done with their attempts, or at least not done, but at least exhausted in their attempts to take the Donbass. And the answer to that is not very good, right? So the interim doesn't look great. And it looks like it's going to be a difficult period. There's some assessments that the Russians are firing up to 50, maybe even 60,000 shells and rockets no. um, uh, in, in uh, Ukraine right now. At what point do they start running out of ammunition? You talked about how the Ukrainians have already run out of the 152 millimeter shells. Um, and that's why they need to switch to the NATO systems. But uh, that is an enormous amount of um shells to expand even for russians right yeah i don't think that's true um just those numbers don't don't add up just like some of the just like some of the casualty numbers they um uh they're not plausible the numbers that that you hear because it just it won't check out so i think i think a fair estimate is that ukrainians as they themselves stated they're using probably around five to six thousand shells per day of most likely what they have left um, which is one five two, maybe and one two two, and that the Russian military is probably using somewhere around 
two to three times that amount daily. So I think a fair number for so them. So not, not, not 10 times? No. No, I think a fair number for them. Just my own, like, if you're asking what's written on the back of my envelope, yeah. those rough numbers, it would be maybe something around uh, 15,000 rounds for them. 15, not 50. <laughs> okay? Because 50 is just completely unsustainable. So at what point does the Russian military run out of artillery shells? That is a great question because their supply is not infinite. I'm actually to some extent surprised that they are not rationing. I would say that, you know, if, if in many areas we may have overestimated Russian military capability, one area where we may have actually been underestimated them is the extent of their ammunition supply. Because just to be frank, if this was kind of like a high-end fight uh, contingency between Russia and NATO, it, the Russian military 100 days in with intensive use of artillery apparently would still have ammunition to keep going for some time. And that, that's significant. And remember, Russian, Russia has the production capacity to produce more artillery shells. It's not going to be commensurate with what is used on the battlefield. Often you have you know, battlefield exchanges that uh, in... A week or two or three weeks use up what is, you know, a country's uh, production capacity for months or even a year. But more than likely, the Russian defense industry is now pulling many shifts, making artillery shells and things like that. As I suspect, they've mobilized defense production for artillery munitions months ago. And yes, they can make those uh, natively, and no sanctions are not going to affect them. But they're not going to—they're not going to be at all commensurate with daily use rates, right? So at, cer- at a certain point, you're probably going to begin to see the Russian military rationing use of artillery, just like the Ukrainian military has been forced to do. So, so let's go back. You, you sort of um, teased this earlier in the discussion, but uh, force rotation and how uh, the Russians, in particular, are trying to compensate for their forces right now and for their losses, I should say, in the Donbass. Uh, Bellingcat had a great um, story in the last couple of days about uh, Wagner and other private military contractors uh, confirming that they're now fighting Ukraine. We've heard reports of this shadow mobilization where contractors um, or uh, personnel that have retired from the military maybe as, as far back as 10 years ago are being offered three to 12 month contracts. Is, is that the Russian answer to their losses, um, uh, trying trying to uh, build up their forces um, in the Donbass? Yeah, so the Russian solution has been very much, uh, once again, a kind of piecemeal approach. And you probably recall a long time ago, I said that they're sort of kings of piecemeal solutions and um, trying to muddle through. So what they're attempting to do in order to extend their staying power in the war is, they are hiring up contract servicemen where they can get them. They've dramatically expanded the age of folks that they're willing to recruit, that is the age bracket. They are trying to take reservists, those who are in the bar's reserve system, and offering them money to flip them to contract service. They are putting those, those let's say, numbers together with what was left in the force. And the Russian military in a regiment or a brigade, you sort of assume that you have... Uh, Three maneuver battalions uh, and, you know, typically a, a, a fourth uh, armor battalion as well. And they generate two BTGs. And then there's, you know, essentially a third BTG that can be generated from the remainder of that force. Right. So what they're basically trying to do is they're trying to take the equipment that's left in those brigades and in those regiments and the officers and the enlisted professionals that haven't deployed yet. Okay. And they're trying to put them together with these contract servicemen in order to not use conscripts. It's actually very interesting how much they're trying to avoid using conscripts for, you know, we can presume political reasons, whatnot, to put together additional reserve battalions. And these reserve battalions aren't very big, but they're trying to get a decent number of these reserve battalions. Their challenge is by taking this approach. Of course, avoiding the hardest political decisions, right? No declaration of a state of war, no declaration of stop-loss policies, no declaration that they will begin employing conscripts en masse, and a sort of shadow mobilization that's essentially being just paid for. Uh, but this is just extending the Russian military's ability to fight this war 
it doesn't solve the structural problem in the force, which is trying to do it this way. They're using the officers that they will need to train conscripts and to rotate personnel through the force down the line. And they're also increasingly using the equipment they need as well to train uh, to train new soldiers, right? So what's happening is you have a steady degradation of the force where they're cannibalizing, cannibalizing it in uh, in lots of small ways on the margin that will affect uh, the overall sustainability of the war effort. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that yes, they can they can uh, sustain the war. We're doing straight line analysis here, basically assuming at this pace and at this loss of casualties for some time. But ultimately, this approach is not sustainable, and it degrades the overall Russian force. And on the material side, I'm sure you're probably aware that you know their losses are pretty significant when it comes to tanks and various types of heavy armored fighting vehicles. So that's why you see them yanking T-80BVs from storage, which I think they have quite a few of, and T-62Ms that they're giving to the LPR, DPR uh, guys, the various um, uh, mobilized units from uh, Donetsk and Lugansk Oblast, which T-62Ms are slated in the Russian military for reservists. They began that doing, they began trying to set that up, I think, almost five years ago, back in 2018, you began seeing T-62Ms. And they, and they have thousands of these, right? So they're not yeah. in danger of running out of them anytime soon. Uh, the, okay, so they do. And I think they have quite a few T-80s as well. And they're not in danger of running out of um, late Soviet generation uh, MBTs. Where they are in danger, though, and that's become very clear looking at the reserve battalions they're bringing in, is they've lost too many infantry fighting vehicles. And they clearly don't have a lot of BMP-2s in storage. And I can tell you how I know that, because most of the new, new units are fighting on BMP-1s and MTLBs. What does that tell you, Dmitry? They don't have any. That's right. Um, you know, why would you pull a BMP-1 out of storage if you had a BMP-2? There's no logical reason for it, right? So clearly they are short on BMP-2s and they are short on uh, spare parts. So all the folks on Twitter who are trying to guess what the Russians have in storage when it comes to main battle tanks, I think we're barking up the wrong branch on the tree because the interesting conversation is on mechanization of the force and the fact that the Russian military is going to be pretty low on BMP-2s. That's very, that's very visible. So a lot of these reserve units are going to have old BMP-1s. Some are modernized. They have a 30-millimeter combat module, the BMP-1AM mod. But, uh, but nonetheless, you're going to see the Russian military having to switch to these other types of vehicles. So you're predicting an operational pause in the next month or two. Do you think that that pause might result in an actual ceasefire, uh, given the losses on both sides and the, and the exhaustion? Or do you think they're just going to keep grinding away? No, I think it's going to be a dynamic battlefield. We're going to see small shifts of territory on the margins, around Kharkiv, around Kherson, and even around the Donbass. But you, you won't see much. You'll see kind of small localized counterattacks. We're already steadily, I think, transitioning into that phase so much so that I, I don't think we might we're going to see a very hard uh, and clear cut transition from this current phase of the war to what to me kind of intellectually constitutes an operational pause. But uh, my view is that we'll know it when we see it. And at a certain point, the, the Russian offensive in the Donbass is going to simply run out of steam. Right. And then both sides will have such significant levels of exhaustion that they'll be spending most of their time engaging in artillery skirmishes and duels while trying to replenish their force because they're going to need people, they're going to need equipment, and they're going to need ammunition. What about partisan warfare? We've seen some news about attempted assassinations in the occupied areas by the Ukrainians, some successful bombings with um, IEDs. Not, not clear if those are actually mines or improvised explosive devices. Uh, do you expect that to be ramped up in the coming weeks as um, the Russians are settling into their occupation? Yeah, so that, I think that was probably one of the more anticipated aspects of this war. And it's a bit surprising, even though it showed up this late. Uh, it, there seems to be some partisan warfare emerging in Kyrgyzstan and a couple of other areas occupied by the Russian military. I think we're probably going to see more of that. Um, it, it depends on... It depends on Russian force availability as well, as to what extent they have units to control this terrain. Because on the one hand, the more terrain they took, 
the more people they would need to control and occupy it. And their biggest issue consistently has been manpower. On the other hand, they used the new territory they took, at least uh, in Donetsk and Lugansk, to mobilize more people, right? Essentially, and capture, basically press men into service to try to fill out these additional units. And so that's why you're increasingly seeing um, Russian combined arms armies from the southern military district essentially fielding as significant parts of the force these uh, battalions from uh, Lugansk and Donetsk Oblast, right? Many of which are mobilized. That's why they're having some of these morale issues. And I'll give you a good example. So you see Severodonetsk is one of the areas where those units in particular are fighting. And and also holding the line of contact uh, down in uh, Zaporizhia. So my sense of it is that uh, these are very far kind of from the best units. They're probably like more second, third echelon. And it's a big question of whether the the Russian security services are going to be able to control some of this territory over time. But yeah, there, we're likely to see more partisan warfare. And in particular, uh, people going after those who they think are collaborators in order to uh, to try to prevent Russia from trying to set up effective political administration in these regions. So, Mike, you mentioned on, on many of these um, podcasts that we've been surprised um, about the state of Russian forces uh, in a number of ways, in some ways uh, about um, the extent that, that they have, um, you know, large uh, stocks of ammunition, for example, and you just talked about um, the lo- potentially low stocks of um, uh, infantry fighting vehicles. Let me ask you to sort of step back, and, and obviously there'll be a lot written on this in the coming years, but what are the lessons for you so far that the U.S. military can take away from this fight about the state of the Russian force and what we might need um, should we ever have to fight the Russians in a potential NATO versus Russia confrontation that hopefully will never happen? But um, how do you think we need to be changing our mindset is it is it more, for example, artillery shells that we need to be producing more uh, artillery systems? Um, what, what do you what are you thinking about as as you're looking at the last four months of this conflict? Well, yeah, it's a really long conversation. I think one of the biggest unknowns is all right, what's going to come of the Russian military? We don't know how this war is going to proceed. When's it going to end? Um, I definitely think that eventually. Whatever happens, Russia will rebuild its military. It always does. May not rebuild it to look like it did before. May rebuild into something else. So, to me, probably the good takeaways are to focus on lessons that uh, aren't conditioned on the, on those things that we can't necessarily foresee. I think it's it's important not to take away from this the lesson of the Russian military did so poorly in the early phase in Ukraine. So NATO would have easily won no matter the scenario, the circumstance with Russia. That is just not how war works at all. I'm sorry. Um, it's very context dependent and the scenario and the conditions really matter. And often folks try to generalize um, from one particular situation to another, but there's no such thing as a sort of U.S. is number one military in China, two and Russia's three. It depends on the scenario and what's being fought over and so on and so forth. So putting that spiel aside, which I know you've heard from me before, um, but not probably not everybody who's tuning in right now has, has heard me say that. Uh, I think to me, the big lessons are just for us when we think about sustained conventional warfare or the prospect of a great power war. This teaches something that I've been harping on for quite some time which is we often focus on the operational warfighting problem, right? Which is a particular scenario. You, you do a lot of the force planning based around it. You assume a fight the last X period, there's a culminating point and whatnot. But that's not how wars go at all. Wars are very often come down to attrition. Uh, the war doesn't stop when the operational scenario is resolved, right? Like win, lose, or draw, whatever happens, the war goes on. Then your best forces are expended all the advanced weapons you have might be gone by the end of the first month you've used them up and you really have to think about what a grinding conflict could look like because look for all its um for all challenges and all the problems they had in terms of lack of performance if you look at like the russian military and you look at the ukrainian military too what you see are two forces that have probably sustained let's say somewhere on the order of uh, over 10,000 killed in action and maybe over 50,000 total casualties in the span of a few months. 
And they're both still on the field. And neither one of them's collapsed. You don't see major routes. You don't see major surrenders. You see uh, those casualties forcing both sides into more of an attrition war. But there's an important story here. There's a story here about uh, the importance of looking at replaceability of equipment, at defense sectors, at capacity to, uh, to produce, at ammunition stores, and about how would you think how would you think and intellectually approach the prospect of a large conventional war, right? Which goes on. It, it has different phases that is often wars like this start off with a rapid maneuver phase and high casualties and then settle down into this. This is why if I showed you the opening of World War I, it looks very differently from how World War I proceeded. But most people don't remember the opening of World War I, sort of the Battle of Frontiers or the first Battle of the Marne, which was very bloody and actually had a tremendous amount of maneuver warfare. And it was the exhaustion and attrition from that from from those fights that then led to uh, what's seen as more iconically representative of that conflict, that is trench warfare and artillery battles. Okay, this is unfortunate. I could just keep going and going um, uh, on the subject, but I think it's a tremendous amount here to learn. What I'm really worried about is always Mitri's that we'll take the wrong lessons. A lot of folks are looking for validating lessons in this war. You know, uh, particularly particularly in in my defense establishment. And what they're not looking at is, is they're, not ask, they're not asking themselves the hard questions of, could things like this be happening to us? Um, you know, what would we look like in an opposed river crossing, for example? You know, yeah, there's a lot of things that tactically the U.S. military does a lot better. But putting that aside, there are a lot of challenges and things that the Russian military has faced that uh, our military could face on the modern battlefield, right? An extent of losses, an extent of determination, and uh, a degree of attrition that simply hasn't been seen, you know, in the last 30 years in conflicts that we've been involved in. Okay, I don't want to get ranty here, but that's... No, that's a perfect uh, endpoint. Um, thank you again for sharing your incredible insights with us. Um, you have one of the best uh, views and analytical powers of, this con of anyone in this conflict that's been analyzing this conflict. So it is much, much appreciated. Thanks again for joining us tonight, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Yeah, thanks for having me back.